Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Kurt Nelson. Kurt is a sought-after speaker and recognized leader in human motivation and behavior change. For over 20 years, Kurt has worked with global companies to apply behavioral science principles to drive change in their organizations. He is founder and president of The Lantern Group, a communication and behavioral design agency which uses behavioral science insights to improve employee engagement and motivation. He also is the co-founder with Tim Houlihan of the Behavioral Grooves podcast, where they interview leading academic and business executives from around the world and explore how they apply behavioral science to their work and lives. All of his work focuses on understanding ways to positively influence how people behave. In the episode, Kurt explains how a rudimentary understanding of behavior science can improve our relationships and careers, why friction is especially critical for habit change, behavior biases that are keeping us from reaching our full potential, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to the local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Kurt. Enjoy. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Kurt. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Oh, Brooke, happy to be here. And sorry, my dog is barking in the background, but uh, <laughs> that's, okay. that's what you get. Thank you. That's Perfect timing. And I feel like your dog is also excited that you're here. So. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Can you start by sharing your background and specifically what led you to become a behavioral scientist? Yeah. So I have always been interested in understanding why people do what they do, right? It's a common kind of inquiry that I think many people have. This idea of either myself or close friends or even just strangers out there. It's like, oh, 
we're we're doing some things that don't necessarily resonate with how I think they should be doing them. And so it's always been an interest. And even when I was back getting my MBA and I was going into business, my favorite class was consumer behavior, uh, which looked at understanding why consumers bought things the way they did and a variety of aspects around that. So for instance, why does somebody buy something when it's priced $2.99 a lot more than when it's priced at $3? And if you increase the price from $3 to $3.01, there is no drop off. So it's not the penny difference, but it's just the fact that one is is marked at $2.99 and one is at $3. And again, if you think about it, it doesn't really make much sense, but that's how we're we're wired. And so it's really interesting for me to just kind of try to figure out and understand what it is about the way that we think, the way that we behave, and really try to get a deeper understanding of that and then apply that to our lives. That is so fascinating, fascinating consumer behavior. I know I've read articles here and there, but Costco, for example, how... I don't know if you've heard about this. They put their rotisserie chicken in the very back of the store. And it's, I think, $4.99. And they actually lose money on that item. But by putting it in the back of the store, you have to walk through the entire store. And so Mm -hmm. you usually end up leaving, spending $300 at Costco, even if you just go for the rotisserie chicken. Um, But I always think about these things now when I'm shopping. I don't know if it curbs my purchasing at all, but (laughs) I... I'm aware of it as I'm going to get that rotisserie chicken that I'm probably going to pick up a lot of stuff along the way. Yeah. When you think about retail and sales and various different things, these are all the time they're doing it. Grocery stores in general will put milk near the back of the store because we tend to go and pick up milk a lot more often than we do you know, other things. And again, you have to walk past everything else and the impulse buys that you have. They put higher margin products at eye level as opposed to lower or higher because we are more likely to pick those up and buy those. So there's a number of those factors that come from consumer behavior as well. And again, it's just understanding our human behavioral tendencies. And that's a really, I think, an important thing, both from a A, if you're a business and you're trying to maximize your profits, but also if you're a consumer and you're trying to figure out wait, are they really trying to get me to do the be- what's be- in my best interest? Or is this really just for them to sell something extra? Do you feel like they can't pull one over on you anymore in oh, the grocery store? God, no, they can pull one over on me every <laughs> single time. <laughs> Those candy bars at the checkout, they always get or the gum right there. Oh, I mean. <laughs> impulse buys right at the end. You're waiting in line and it's right there and it's very tempting. Yeah, yeah. So you know what they're doing, but you still, they can still get you. So Yeah. So so Danny Kahneman, who is a Nobel laureate behavioral economist and has studied the stuff way more and is much brighter, much smarter than I will ever even hope to be, right? And in one of his interviews, somebody asked him, well, you know all these behavioral biases that we have, so you're immune to them. And he goes, oh, no, I'm not. I fall free to all of them just as much as you do. And there's this... Um, There's this kind of concept within behavioral science that knowing in and of itself isn't enough to actually um, change your behavior. So even knowing about these, because oftentimes the the impulses that we have work at a subconscious level. They're not a conscious level thought. Even sometimes they are, but you still can't help yourself, right? There are factors that are playing into the way that we think, the way that we decide, the way that we behave that just really kind of overpower many of the other things that that are going on for us. 
Well, that's reassuring to me that, you know, we're all human, (laughs) (laughs) that everybody falls victim to these things, not just me. Yes. Yes. As a nutrition and weight loss coach, I'm always, people will come to me and just think, oh, you must just love spending time in the kitchen or you love exercising or all these things you do on a daily basis because this is your job. You just do them naturally and you never have to kind of work at it. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I would say the majority of the time that I'm prepping a healthy meal, I don't particularly want to be doing it, but I'm doing it. And so it's really just, you understand kind of the mechanisms behind it and Mm -hmm. you have habits that you put into place and you kind of stick with them. But I once interviewed a trainer for top celebrities and I asked him, do you always want to work out? I mean, you must enjoy working out. And he said, most days I really don't want to work out. I do this for a living. I train the top celebrities. I don't even want to work out. And so these things are just reassuring to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very true, right? It's the, you know, the shoemaker's kids don't have shoes. It's, it's still, it's hard work. <laughs> yeah. And we don't necessarily always apply the insights that we have to our own lives, nor do we necessarily enjoy having that stuff done to us. So. As a behavioral scientist, do you mostly study how to help other people change behaviors or how to help yourself as well? Or is it kind of all the same? It's definitely a a combination of both, right? There is there is the aspect of understanding yourself so you can better be better informed, better understand what I can do in order to, if I was, again, so if I wanted to eat healthier, if I wanted to exercise more, if I wanted to uh, read more books, there are, there are tips and habits and different things that you can put in place that are going to help you. But you can also, from a behavioral science perspective, and, and I basically work in applied behavioral science, so I take the insights that other people have discovered and and brought forth. And then we figure out how do you apply those in different situations, whether that be in work, whether that be in uh, your personal life, et cetera. And how do you then take those insights and make them meaningful so that it actually impacts you in a way that you want it to impact you? Mm, Really fascinating. As you were saying, your favorite class in college was the one about consumer behavior. I was thinking, I think my favorite class in college was this psychology class. Mm. And I did nothing with that. <laughs> just, You're using it thought, every day. Come on. That's true. That's yeah. true. But I just, I thought, wow, this is fascinating. I love this so much. And then I went on to become a teacher for many years, which I guess kind of has to do with psychology in some ways. Um, and I, yes, I'm sure I still use it today, but that was smart of you to pick up on that. <laughs> this is my favorite class. This is what I should pursue. That's brilliant. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about behavior change? So I think one of the biggest misconceptions about behavior change is that, you know, behavior, behavior purposeful behavior change is hard. I will admit that, right? I mean, it, it's hard. If I want to go on a diet, um, that can be very difficult, right? We have temptations all the time in front of us and various different things. But change itself isn't that hard. We change every single day. The behaviors that I'm doing today are different than the ones I did yesterday, from last week, from last month, from last year, 5, 10, 20 years ago, right? If you look back on your own life, you will see that you have changed a lot in what you do in your daily routine. The behaviors, the way that you even think about things has changed. And that happens 
every single day, all of the time. And the the piece that is hard is when we're trying to do something that is uh, purposeful and and is, as you said, I don't necessarily like having to cook healthy meals and it's not something that I get intrinsic enjoyment out of, but I know it's good for me. And so how do you set up your environment? How do you set up the incentives that you put forward for yourself in order to make sure that that is more likely to happen? And just understand that change, we are changing. We're changing every single day and that it is possible to do so. You said a key word there, environment, and I learned this years ago when I read a book called Willpower Doesn't Work, Mm -hmm. which was basically just saying that willpower is finite, it always runs out, and if you're always trying to have better willpower, let's say to avoid all the cookies in the pantry, it's going to be this uphill battle, but then if you change your environment and you don't bring the cookies in to begin with, then your environment kind of supports you and works in your favor and you don't have to struggle as much day in, day out with these healthy habits. Do you agree with that idea in terms of self-control, motivation, willpower, that they're finite and we should be working on creating more supportive environments instead? So I will I will I will say that I don't necessarily believe, and I think the research is, isn't conclusive that willpower is finite, but I will definitely agree that if you set your environment up in such a way to help or to assist you in whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, that is probably one of the most, if not the most powerful ways to change your behavior above and beyond anything else that you can do. And if you are truly trying to change your behavior and just depending upon willpower, that is most likely going to fail. And, you know, we hear about people that have all the strong willpower. Oh, they just set their mind to it and they do it. Actually, when you look at the research and you look at the people that are doing that, they are actually putting in place the, you know, making the environment more conducive to doing the right behaviors as opposed to doing the wrong behaviors. And so, when we think about behavior change and when we think about this, um, the idea that willpower is finite or motivation is finite, in the long run, I, I, I don't know. Um, and, and I'm sure there'll be research on that moving forward. But I can tell you today that the best way to try to make change is to make sure that your environment, uh, both your physical as well as your social, your people you hang around with, are going to be supporting and helping you make the right decisions and do the right behaviors as opposed to leading you astray and tempting you to do the bad things because we're not good at that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of setting up an environment to be more conducive to success in any, any realm you mentioned like reading more or maybe in terms of healthy habits, any kind of tangible examples? Yeah. So there, there, I mean, there's lots of them out there. You can Google them. They're really fun. One of my favorites though, is um, there was a gentleman who was trying to learn how to play guitar. All right. So he'd come home from work. He had the intent. He'd set his mind. I'm going to learn how to play guitar this year. And what would you do when you come home from work? He would sit down on the couch. He's all tired. And what's in front of him, the remote control to the TV. So he turns on the TV and lo and behold, two or three hours pass because he's just sat there and watched television. Um, And so what he realized is I got to change this. And so what he did is he moved his television back into a back bedroom and he moved his guitar and the guitar stand out to the living room. So when he came home from work, what did he do? He still sat down on that couch, right? 
but now he didn't have a TV and a remote to lean, you know, kind of grab. What he had was his guitar. And so instead of spending those two or three hours watching television, he ended up, you know, practicing guitar. Now, I don't think he practiced guitar for two or three hours a night, but he definitely, you know, did that much more than he did before. And it helped him in learning how to play guitar. So, again, setting up, you talked about moving the cookies out, and I've actually done this. I'm a big um, Oreo, you know, if Oreos are in the house I, I will eat them, right? Um, yeah, they like burn a hole in your brain. Oh my god, they're, they're just uh, they're <laughs> they're magical food. I don't know, but uh, you know, I know, and they're horrible for me, right? But so, and my kids love them, and so it's one of the things that we do is we we still buy Oreos, but now instead of having the Oreos in the cupboard up, you know, on the main floor, I move them into the basement, and so just mm-hmm. that fact of moving those Oreos into the basement, they're still there. If we really want them for dessert or something like that, we can go down and get them. But the additional um, effort it takes for me to walk down those basement stairs to go get an Oreo at 3 p.m. when I'm taking a break from work and I look in the cupboard and they're not there and I go, oh, A, they're not there so they don't tempt me. But B, even if I am thinking about them, it's like, all right, it's another 30, 40 seconds to just go down the basement. But even that much friction, that little bit of friction is enough most times, not every time, but most times to stop me from going down and doing that. Is a lot of creating a supportive environment then either adding friction or removing friction? It is. It is. And so when we think about friction, so the friction in the way that I'm talking about it are just anything that adds effort or time or energy into what you're trying to do. And so if you're trying to inhibit yourself from doing something, one of the best ways of being able to do that is to add friction to the system. Um, I will, there was a woman that I was, that uh, came to one of the, the conferences that I did and we were talking about things and she would overspend. So she would, you know, just get on and go online and buy a whole bunch of stuff and she knew it wasn't good. So what she ended up doing was she would take her credit card, she would put it in a bowl of water and put it in the in the freezer. And so mm. she froze her credit card. Um, and so she could use it, but she would have to take the credit card out and it would have to, you know, unmelt for however long that took. And by that time, it was usually enough to, to stop that. Same thing, if you want to increase what you're doing, reduce that friction, make it easier, as easier and inviting as possible. And the more that you can do that, the better off you're going to be in being able to make something, uh, that behavior change happen. As you're talking about the credit card one, I'm thinking how computers and phones now, they just save your credit card information. Mm-hmm. So talk about reducing friction for purchasing because you, I mean, I barely ever enter my credit card number now yeah. because it's just saved everywhere. But I wonder how many fewer purchases people would make if that wasn't the case. Well, there has been really interesting research done on just cash versus credit and the idea that mm. when we, we have to pay for something in cash, we it, it's harder for us. A, we, we're realizing how much we're spending, right? It's like, take this 20, another 20, another 20. Oh my gosh, all of a sudden that's 60 bucks I'm spending on this versus a credit card where it's just a number there and you just click a button and it goes. And I think the same thing to your your point here is, even just that little act that it's already right there and it's just on my phone, I don't have to enter anything, that little bit of friction um, that's removed makes the likelihood of that purchase happening much better. 
That, that's so interesting. Do Would you say that understanding behavioral science, is this something we should all kind of be learning in high school or college? Does it really just help everyone to make more positive beha- behavior changes in their lives? So I, I think we all are behavioral scientists in our own way. I mean, we mm-hmm. all are studying how we interact with people, with our friends, with our family, and understanding, oh, I can act this way with this person, and I can't act that way with another person, or in this situation or that situation. So it's it's ingrained. But yes, I think there is some real um, powerful uh, positives that can happen if we were to teach, particularly less about behavioral science in general, but more about decision making and how we make decisions and the facts of how you go about thinking about what is going to be put in place. Do we just always trust our gut? Do we always have to get information? How do we frame our decisions? All of those factors that come into play. And those are really important things. And if we can learn those and then we can actually practice how to put those into our lives, I think we would be much better off, uh, both individually, but also as a community and as a society. As you were talking about, you kind of know how to act around different people versus others. And we're all kind of behavior scientists in our own way. It was making me think of kids. I feel like kids are the best at knowing like which parent to go to oh, yeah. for which question. Talk about many behavioral scientists. <laughs> exactly. I mean, think of it. We, we know this in, innately, right? And and this is on, on the podcast that we do. We've interviewed a number of people that we call accidental behavioral scientists who are putting things in place, either in nonprofits or in work or different things. And they don't know the science behind it, right? It's like, Restaurants who would put um, the first customers that come in in the evening up in the window seats, right? So when people walk by, they they look in and, oh, there's people there. They didn't understand that that's social proof, but they just mm-hmm. understood that when I put people up front, it draws more people in, you know, later on. And that's a, you know, we, we know these things innately. We just don't necessarily have the names or the terms or really fully understand them. And, and there is value in understanding that. And that's, I think, important. I lived in New York City for a number of years, and there would be certain bars and clubs that would just always hold a line Mm -hmm. outside. So you would think it was this hot spot and it was packed inside and that was the place to go. And I'm very, I have a extreme aversion to lines after living in New York. I mean, I was just like, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to wait in a line if I could go to this place across the street. I don't care how cool it is. But A couple of times I was coerced into going into these lines with friends. And when we got inside, there was not that many people in there. It's not that it was too packed inside and you had to have a line. It was just, I mean, that's brilliant, right? To make everybody think this is the hot spot because we have a line outside. It it taps into a couple different things. So one is that social proof. Oh, if other people are, are waiting for it, it must be good. Therefore, I will do it as well. But also scarcity. If there's a line, that means it's a limited resource, right? I have a, I, there's not as much of it. And we like... For the crazy reasons, you know, that we we do, we are much more inclined to want something if it's scarce than if it's abundant. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a number of factors that play in that. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about that. You mentioned decision making um, and all like a lot of factors that go into it. How can we improve our decision making? So one of the key things, and I think that there are lots of ways to do this, but one of the key things is just the way that we frame 
um, the decisions that we're making. Annie Duke, famous um, poker player, won the world championship and then has gotten into decision science and wrote a couple wonderful books, um, talks about it this way, is that we tend to make decisions and we think about things in like black and white. It's 100% or it's 0%, the likelihood of something happening. So when we're making a decision, we frame it in that way. If I do this, it's going to be 100% sure or 100% not sure, right? Um, or 0% sure. And in fact, there's usually some element of chance or risk or different things. So even if it's a really sure thing, it's probably like more like 99%, 99.5%. And if we just frame our thinking around when we make big decisions around that, that goes a long way because one of the behavioral biases, and we haven't talked about all behavioral biases yet that we have, is a thing called confirmation bias. This idea that um, when new information comes in, it's much more likely to make our conscious and be, you know, uh, we, we take account of it if it if it agrees with our pre-held beliefs, if it's something that we already believe and we see information, it just doubles down. But if it contradicts the belief we have, our brain does these mental gymnastics and basically it it discounts that information. It makes up excuses for why it's not real. It does all of these different things. Oh, it's 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 fake news. It comes from an untrusty source. They didn't they didn't look at this aspect of it, et cetera. Um, but if we frame our decisions as just like, oh, I'm 90% sure that this is what it is, when that contradictory information comes in, our brain is much more likely to go, oh, all right, I still think it's 80%, but it's not 90%. And so just in doing that, it allows us to learn and to improve our decision-making process over time. I think that's a really big thing. Another thing that Annie talks about is this idea that we often put way too much effort and energy into small decisions that really are free rolls, as she calls them in poker. It's basically, you know what, you get to do it over if you if you make a mistake, it doesn't cost you anything. So don't put a lot of thought and effort into it, such as if you go to a restaurant over and over again, you know, you don't have to sit there and go, oh, man, do I get the fish or the steak tonight? Um, you can make that decision. And, you know, at worst, you have maybe a little bit of food envy from the person that bought the steak and you got the fish. But, you know, in the big scheme of things, it's not that big. And next time you can get the steak. So don't over don't overanalyze all of the small decisions that are in our lives and make sure that when you do have big decisions that you weigh and you think about it in probabilities, you think in bets, you think in this uh, percentage of, of how likely is this going to happen and then go back afterwards and say, was I right? Was I not? And then adjust as you move forward. Hmm. Aside from confirmation bias, what are some of the other behavioral biases? Oh my gosh, there's hundreds, hundreds and hundreds oh, of hundreds. them. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, what are some of the big ones? Yeah. So some of the big ones, and one of them that I think is really kind of key is, is an, uh, a bias that's called loss aversion. This idea that we we feel the pain of a loss about twice as painful as the equivalent pleasure that we would get from a similar gain. So for instance, I'm walking out on the street and oh, oh my gosh, there's a there's a $100 bill on the ground. Hey, I get a certain amount of pleasure from finding that $100 bill. So I put it in my pocket, I go, go throughout the day, at the end of the day I'm going and I'm going to go buy dinner and I go, "Oh, I got that $100 in my pocket." And I realize, "Oh, I actually dropped that $100 somewhere." Well, the pain that I get from losing that $100 
is about twice as much as the kind of the pleasure I got from um, finding that $100. And that goes into a lot of things about how we take risks, um, not just financial risks, but even, you know, um, kind of things about, hey, is this going to be, are, are people going to think that I'm silly doing this? Are people going to look at me weird? Am I going to be ostracized be, because of this? And that feels like a loss to us. It loses some of the the emotional and social support that we have. And so our decisions are often biased and we stay more in the status quo. So we do what we've always done as opposed to maybe taking risks that we should take or make changes in our lives that we should make because we know they're going to be beneficial, but there is a possibility that they aren't. And that possibility of that risk that is associated with it gets kind of magnified in our brains. And so we often don't do the things that we should do because of that loss aversion that we have. Mm, Interesting. What does behavioral science tell us about having a happy relationship? There, uh, um, so there's a, a number of really good um, researchers out there that talk about relationships and various different pieces and and what that takes. Um, there's there's a, a Logan Yuri who fantastic fantastic author and I think she wrote and I'm gonna hopefully I get the book right. It's like How Not to Die Alone. Um, and she talks about this idea of, you know, what it is in, in relationships, particularly dating. So I'm old and married, and so I, I don't understand this as much. But, you know, in the in the world of dating now with dating apps and all of the different pieces that are going on, which is well, you know, happened after my time. I, I didn't know any of that kind of stuff that's going on. But the idea that we have this perfect idea of who we want to date and the likelihood of us actually finding that person, that 100%, um, is probably very limited. And the likelihood of actually having happiness with that person is even less. And so we have these qualities. They have to be tall. They have to be blonde hair, blue eyes. They have to have a job that's X. They have to look a certain way, uh, have a certain religion, whatever that is. The research actually points and says that most of those things they're not correlated to happiness and successful relationships at all. And so one of the big things that people look for, uh, women looking for men in particular, is is height and this idea that they need to be a certain height in order to do that. And that has absolutely no correlation from all of the research to show as to how happy you are in that relationship. And so um, uh, what one of the things that Logan said is, look, when you when you're putting your profile and what you want, you know, pick some of the shorter guys and, you know, you might be you might get lucky there. And and it's the relationship itself, I think, is really kind of key as opposed to some of the qualities or characteristics that we're looking for. Yeah, I think uh, when I was dating, I didn't put enough stock in your spending every day with somebody (laughs) you know the the physicality stuff that fades very fast and everybody says that but who can you actually be around day in day out and have fun and not go crazy who's not going to drive you nuts basically yeah Um, it's it's so true and it's the idea that if if we think that these things and this other person are going to lead to a happy life, the the research, uh, uh, Seth David Stevenson um, did this really great book, Don't Trust Your Gut. And in that, he talks about all this data around um, relationships and various different pieces. And one of the things that he says is that, um, you know, 
the data shows that we are horrible predictors at what is going to make us happy in a relationship. And the only thing that really correlates is how happy you are with yourself and how happy the other person is with themselves prior to Hmm. getting together in the relationship. And it goes to what you're saying. I have to spend all this time with this person and if they're happy about themselves and kind of that, and I'm happy about myself, it's much more likely that we're going to have a happy relationship. Oh, that's really interesting. How can you apply behavioral science to parenting? No, <laughs> I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> uh, my gosh, my, my kids um, will, it's, it's funny. They're going, are you doing that psychology stuff on us again? And that's like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> Um, they spot you from a mile away. Oh, huh? my gosh. Kids, are, it's what we talked about, right? Kids are yeah. wonderful at knowing which parent to go to and different things. And they, they figure <laughs> things out in, innately. Um, but this idea, I think I think a couple of the things is just really helping your, you know, being able to say, again, some of the decision-making elements and different things. But also, I think from the perspective of being a parent, one of the things that's important is that... Again, I will go back to some of the research um, that points to our kids are pretty resilient. Um, you know, and not saying that we don't want to make the life for our kids the best possible life we have, but we don't, as parents, need to be overly concerned that oh, I didn't give them you know the right shoes, then they got you know laughed at at school today, and that's going to scar them for life. That is most likely not going to have a big impact. And for the most part, it's us just setting expectations and kind of guiding them in their life. And, you know, the day-to-day stuff, if you just are there for them, you show that they are loved, that they have um, basically, that they feel an affinity and that they feel safe in around where you are, the better that you can do that, the more that they're going to be um, good, positive um, people as they grow up, they're going to be happy. They're going to be satisfied with life. They're going to have a good quality, long life. And the small mistakes that we make, everybody makes them. They're not going to. They're not going to negatively scar your kid. And so, don't be so overly concerned about that. That's the best advice I can give from a behavioral science perspective on parenting. Just kind of lower the bar for yourself and just you don't provide have to, love and safety. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, love them and, and keep them safe and show them warmth and, and care and, you know, give them hugs. Uh, you know, the body warmth piece, the body connection piece is actually really powerful, too, to show that. Um, and then, you know, everything else, you know, you don't, yeah, do your best. But if, if it's not perfect, it's okay. They're going to be fine. They're resilient. They will, they will survive and probably even thrive from it. Are there ways that people could be applying lessons from behavioral science at work that you see them maybe not doing enough? So once again, I think that the big thing, one of the areas that I've I've really kind of looked into and, and studied is communication and how do we communicate with each other and the power that words have. Um, there's a whole area of behavioral science psychology around behavioral priming and framing. And so um, the words that we use can have a big influence on the behavior that people exhibit. So if we're um, thinking about uh, 
uh, a communication going out. I'll, I'll give this example. It's an example I use uh, quite often, but uh, a university wanted um, people to register for a class. Um, they wanted them to register before August 1st. And so they sent out uh, uh, an email or a letter uh, to uh, the people that were you know, going to be available for the class. And they said, um, if you register before August 1st, we'll give you a 15% discount. But then for half of the group, they sent a different letter. They said, if you register after August 1st, we're going to give you or you're going to assess a 15% penalty. So the same, same monetary impact in there. But the difference in how people responded was significant. So about 69, 70% of the people um, registered before August 1st when it was the, you get a, you get a discount. But 92% of the people registered when they said there was a penalty. This goes back to the loss aversion piece that we just talked about, right? It's like when it's a penalty, they're taking something away, you're more motivated to do it. And not saying that you always frame things in the negative, but um, you have to really think about the words that you're using in work and how you're communicating something, the expectations that you're setting up, because um, they all drive our behavior in ways that sometimes, you know, a single word or the way that you frame something um, doesn't really seem that big, but it can have a, 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 a big effect on, on what we do. And I say that now just after talking about parents not having to worry about what they say and do in front of their kids. And it sounds contradictory, but they're, they're kind of, you know, long-term versus short-term kind of impacts. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one -on -one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. As you were describing that, I was thinking of sales and how it's all commission-based, so you get money based on how many sales you make. Yep. And I'm sure you could never do this, but what if it was like, here's your salary for the year, and we're going to dock you money for sales if you don't hit your quota or something? I mean, would that be more in line with behavioral science, even though you probably can't do that? So you can do that. There have oh, been experiments. Can. Yeah, there there have been companies that have done that. And it depends. Again, it's, it's a classical kind of thing. It depends. Um, there have been studies, particularly if it's not, I mean, it wouldn't do that with your paycheck and various different things. You'd probably get a big reactance and, and kind of push back on that. But there have been ones where people have been, hey, you know, here's a here's a short term incentive for the month. We're going to try to hit this goal. Here's your money up in advance. And oh, for every percentage uh, attainment that we don't achieve, we're going to be taking some of that money back. And and depending upon how it's set up and depending upon the amount and, and effort, there were studies done with some car manufacturers and car dealerships where it actually did not work, um, where the the clawing back of that money was it, it 
it acted in a way that was contrary to what the kind of hypothesis would have been around there. But in others where it was smaller, kind of in that situation, um, that has been really, really powerful. And actually, the people have even done it for things like, um, you know, uh, drug um, pharmacy uh, adherence for patients. So uh, you sign up and for every day that you take your medication, you know, every month you get a certain amount deposited into a, in a, an account. Um, and then every day that you miss some of that money gets um, taken out of that account. And so there are lots of ways that it has been applied. Also thinking of parenting, I know I used to get an allowance if I would do the chores I was supposed to do when I was, I I guess, in middle school and high school. But interesting if, I mean, I'm thinking about this, what if you gave the kids the money up front and then if you don't get all the things done, I'm taking some of it away. I mean, that's just, that would be an interesting Again, think about that if Steady. you're think about that if you're a kid, right? All right, here's your allowance for the week. We're giving you to an advance, but if at the end of the week you didn't mow the lawn or do the things that we wanted to do, you owe us money. And so the kid having to pay you back that money, um, that's very painful for them, right? Because they feel there there's an, another aspect of loss uh, loss aversion is called the endowment effect, where if we feel like we have something that's ours, we value it more. So the $5 that we have in our pocket is more valuable than actually the $5 that you have in your pocket. Um, mm-hmm. Strange psychological piece there, but that's how it works. And so me actually having to give you my $5 is very hard, very painful for me. And so, yeah, that would be an interesting kind of study to, to look at. Right, because it's more the promise of at the end of the week, you get this money if all these things are done rather than like having it actually in your possession. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if any of your listeners go ahead and try that, <laughs> let me, you know, have them reach out to me and let me know how it works. Cause I'd be really fascinated to see if that is, if it's, if it's positive, if it's negative, you might get some massive pushback from your kids, yeah. but you know, <laughs> more unruly teenagers than usual. They're oh my gosh. Yeah. Losing it. <laughs> Well, I'm so grateful for everything you shared with us today. Um, One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So I think, you know, as we think about our lives and behavioral science points to this, right, is that we often discount um, our future selves um, to the detriment of, you know, getting an immediate reward. And, and the health investment, as you kind of talk about it here, I think is this idea that, look, we have to invest today in order to have a healthy life moving forward. And from a behavioral science perspective, that's not always the easiest thing to do because we have this thing called temporal discounting where we uh, value the today a lot more than we value even a month from now or, or you know, a year from now. So um, I think making those investments in our daily life and the habits that we do, the routines that we set up, again, setting up that environment and for, for us to have that happen. I think that is a really key piece. And, and if we can do that, we're going to have a much better long-term um, healthy and productive and happy life. There's people who will say kind of in the health sphere of, oh, you shouldn't care so much about fitting into your genes or, you know, these kind of temporary or uh, I guess more outside appearance motivation 
motivational things in terms of your health. You should be worrying more about not getting a heart attack 30 years down the road. But I don't know, with clients, you know, it's always like, what are those short-term things you really want? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to fit into those jeans that you have that you were able to wear last year and you can't wear this year? And that's usually more motivation than I don't want to get a heart attack 30 years from now. But the things you would do to fit into those jeans are probably also going to be the things that would help you not get a heart attack 30 years from now. You know, yeah. so it's like find the short term stuff that can keep you going back to that word motivated or, you know, at least doing the things day in, day out. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, if I were cooking dinner every night to stave off disease multiple years in the future, I don't know if that would really keep me going <laughs> as much as having more energy and feeling confident and being mobile and being able to do all the activities I like to do. Like all of those kind of short-term things are always top of mind for me. Yeah, Rick, you, you, you nailed it there. This idea that, you know, long-term goals are great, particularly those, those big important ones, but they don't have the same motivational pull as that immediate. And, and even as you said, these, these outward appearance pieces, um, they're really um, powerful motivators as, as shallow as they might seem on the output, fitting into a pair of jeans, looking good in a, in a swimsuit, all of those, they're social, they're signals, they're outward things that you know there's probably a time and place that you're going to be there. So there's all sorts of elements that are playing into those. And so tapping into those, and particularly if you can tap into those so that the behaviors that you're doing in order to achieve that short-term kind of reward that you want are going to help in the long-term goal that you're trying to achieve it's a classical way of trying to drive a good behavior. And, you know, if you do that, it actually can, it can kind of spur the extrinsic reward, that short-term reward can actually spur some long-term behavior change because one of the things that is highly motivating for us is progress. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if we can see some short-term progress because we're trying to fit into those genes and we do fit into those genes, it's like, I can do this. This is great. I feel motivated to do more of it. And so, yeah, tap into that. Tap into any of those extrinsic rewards that you can do in order to keep yourself motivated, to keep yourself going forward and doing it. You know, one of the last things I'll leave you with is Katie Milkman, a famous researcher at, at um, University of Pennsylvania, talks about temptation bundling. And so you talk about cooking dinner and different things, and you may not necessarily enjoy it. She had this thing about going to work out. You know, she knew she needed to do it, she, she, but it wasn't a top of her priority list. And so what she did is she basically said, look, I, I listen to books on tape, and the only time I will allow myself to listen to these certain books on tape is when I'm at the gym. You know, I put the, the CD or the, the whatever it is there at the gym, and that's the only time I can do it. And you're much more likely to go to the gym and work out and do the things that you do because you're, temp- you're, you're bundling this thing that you have to do with this thing that you want to do. And again, it's setting up that environment for success. And so those are things that I would, I would definitely uh, you know, ask your listeners to think about what they can bundle um, from one something that they love and want to do with something that maybe they should be doing, but they're not doing as much of. What I've kind of gleaned from talking to a lot of different habit change experts and behavior experts on the podcast is 
tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like for most things, we're asking ourselves, how can we make this easier to do and more enjoyable? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not always both. Maybe you can't make something that much more enjoyable, but can you make it easier by removing the friction? Um, Or like you just said, can you make it more enjoyable by every time you go to the gym, you get to listen to this book you're so enthralled by. Um, But if you kind of simplify it in that way. I'm constantly saying that to clients. Do you, is that a good thing to say? <laughs> it is. A, it is a, a perfect thing to say. I mean, okay, I think you, you make it easier, make it attractive. Um, you know, make it the other piece um, is make it social. So, uh, you know, a lot of times if, if you can um, have others, you know, we, we talked about willpower at the beginning, we often will let ourselves down, but we don't want to let others down. Um, So if you can make commitments to others, we're more likely to keep those and then make it timely. Again, what we talked about, right? Make it closer to the time, um, make it a short term kind of goal or immediate little thing. Um, And the the, acronym for that is EAST, easy, um, you know, um, X, you know, make it kind of fun and then social and timely. So. Oh, I love that. Yeah. East. All right. Well, I'm going to definitely steal that. (laughs) Giving you you credit, of course. Giving you credit. Oh, that's okay. Steal it. I stole it from somebody else. So there you go. Perfect. Okay. Well, where can listeners follow and find you? So um, if you're interested at all in behavioral science and applying behavioral science, uh, we have a podcast, me and my co-host, Tim Houlihan, called Behavioral Grooves. It's on pretty much every pod you know, um, place out there where you listen to podcasts. So you can just Google that behavioral grooves. Um, and then obviously if you want to reach out social media, um, we can again, search behavioral grooves and we're out there there. And then if you wanted to just in, get in touch with me, I'm always open to talking to people about this. If you haven't figured out, I kind of, I enjoy this. This is, this would be my temptation, you know, that I'd get <laughs> to tie in. If I could go and work out and get to talk to people about behavioral science, that would be a good temptation bundle for me. Um, and so you can reach out at LinkedIn um, and it's just Kurt W. Nelson at whatever the LinkedIn there is. So um, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll put links to all of those things in the show notes. And again, I think you found your perfect job, right? If your temptation bundle <laughs> is talking about what you do, that's the goal. That's life goals. It, it <laughs> is. I mean, I feel very, very lucky, very blessed and just kind of, yeah, I'm grateful every single day that this is like, I, people pay me to do this. Oh my gosh, this is great. So, no. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for everything you shared with my audience. And I can't wait to stay connected off air. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brooke. This was fun. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.